Today's reading comes from the book of Psalms, chapter 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. It yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in all he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Have you ever experienced times in life where you meet people that have a joy about them, but you start to peel back the layers of the friendship and find out they've been through extreme pain? And brokenness and hardship and have persevered through uh, sometimes some of the worst situations in life. I've met those people. It makes you ask the question, how in the world did these people have so much peace and patience? Right? We, we can have everything under the sun and then we meet some people that have more joy than we do with way less things and it leaves us asking, where does that peace come from? How can they persevere in such painful times? Well, this is precisely where the Matthews family was, uh, serving through the China Inland Missions, uh, living in China post-World War II under a three-year reign as they were trying to escape the country under communist rule. The Matthews just had a newborn baby. They were living in a very small, disgusting room. They had no electricity. The government had cut off their income. They had been separated from all their friends and family. They couldn't connect with them because they would be uh, potentially putting their friends' lives at risk. Their furniture in this room to raise this newborn baby was a wooden stool. All of their belongings were just scattered about on the floor. They had one tiny stove that they were able to heat once a day. And guess when they were able to heat it? In the middle of the day through what fire source? They were so poor they couldn't uh, have matches or wood. So the dad, in the cover of darkness at night, would go and gather animal droppings. And during the day would light it just once during the day where you couldn't see the smoke so clearly, just so the three of them could eat rice once a day. This is baffling. When I read stories like this, I'm like, what gives? And at what point would I be like, God has absolutely turned his back on me? Has God forgotten about us here? I would be Rumbling, y'all would not want to be around me if I was living in those conditions. But the Matthews not only survived the situation and made it back to the Americas, but they thrived in the middle of this. They ended up writing a book entitled Green Leaf in Drought Time. Green Leaf in Drought Time. Can you imagine the imagery there? It's this beautiful sprouting leaf amongst the desolate waste. And, and they were telling about how their family was thriving and loving and enjoying the presence of God in some of the worst conditions imaginable. It begs the question, how in the world can people live like this? How does that happen? Psalm 1 is the answer to that. Psalm 1 answers this. Psalm 1 is going to tell us two things that we're going to see today. There are very real consequences from rooting or anchoring your life in the wisdom of the world and anchoring or rooting your life in the wisdom of God's Word. Alright, there's 
two ways to live your life, both of those things are going to have long-lasting consequences. So, let's start with what it looks like to anchor, anchor your life into the wisdom of the world, to root your life in the wisdom of the world. Verse 1 starts with this contrast of the blessed man. It's, verse 1 starts with the blessed man, and then it gives a bunch of negative things here. starts with what the blessed person doesn't do. Sometimes it's easier to explain what a thing is by saying what it doesn't do, right? This is what the psalmist is doing. The first psalm in the Bible, blessed is the man who doesn't do a series of things. And what you'll notice in verse 1 is there's a progression of a lifestyle of this worldview that's opposed to God. What does this progression do? Look with me in verse 1. It says, the wicked stands in the way of sinners. Um, uh, I'm sorry, walks in the counsel of the wicked, stands in the way of sinners, and sits in the seat of scoffers. So you can sense this progression of the lifestyle here. It's, it's settling over time. You can see this walking, standing, sitting. It's kind of this sinful progression of hardening over time. This walking represents this moldable, impressionable person who's eventually hardened over time. We typically use the phrase in today's nomenclature, somebody's just set in their ways. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. Uh, and sometimes more pejoratively, somebody's just really hard-headed. I've been accused of all three of those. What are some examples of those type of set-in-your-ways people? It's kind of like owning a VCR in 2023 and just having a whole whole row of tapes and VHSs, right? It's kind of set-in-your-ways, right? There's streaming. There's a lot of stuff that you can do and get rid of all those tapes, right? What are some other things that were set-in-their-ways? Maybe an Android phone user who messes up the group text all the time. Imagine the Android user typically also has their, their cell phone connected to the braided belt on their hip so they can access it really quickly while texting with the volume on, right? We know those people. Just kind of set their ways. You love them well, just bing, bing, bing all the time. You know who they are. We love you. Get rid of the braided belt, though. As funny as that is, though, this progression that Psalm 1 is talking about is not so innocent. It's not so funny. These verbs in the Hebrew language are actually really strong. This walking and standing and sitting reflect this progression of being comfortable with sin. The movement is from being naturally walking just in the guilt of sin. Right? We're born into sin. We've inherited sin from our family members. Right, We're, we're walking in that without anybody questioning us. We're just going to naturally move in that sin. But then the walking goes to standing, and it's becoming a little bit more assured and more firm. This goes from uh, being a sinner to knowing what's right and doing opposite of what God calls you to do. And then the longer you stand in that opposition to God... You eventually grow into a person who not only um, negatively rejects God's word, but encourages others to do the same. You've grown into adulthood. You've been conditioned to believe that God's word is not the way to follow the world, and you teach others to do the same. This is very similar to how Kudzu works. 
For those non-Southerners here, kudzu is an invasive plant species that was brought to America to help with the land erosion. Alright? The original planters saw the erosion of the sandy soils in the southeast, and they're like, we need to do something natural that's going to help with all this land erosion. So they brought in kudzu, planted it, and kudzu is very well at growing. It grows like wildfire. But part of the problem with kudzu is that the bulbs grow into these massive hundreds and hundreds of pounds and they are almost impossible to eradicate. You have to destroy everything around it to get these bulbs up. And if you don't eradicate it perfectly, new bulbs will start to replant and kudzu grows all over the place. What started off as a really good idea turned into an absolute disaster. And as you're traveling along the southeast, if you are not actively warring against kudzu, it will grow like wildfire. It will consume power lines and barns and roadsides. Everything that it touches, it will cover and just destroy the life of it. This is what the psalmist is describing about sin. The person who walks in the counsel of the wicked is the person that's just gathering non-biblical advice unknowingly. They're just being raised and advertisements and TV and everything is just impressing upon them. And they're just being raised in this culture of just, this is what life's about. This is all I know. And eventually, that young person grows into an adult to where they accept God's word as being silly and childish. And then they grow more sophisticated to not only not following God's word, thinking it's silly, and then encouraging other people to do the same. This is what they mean by sitting in the seat of scoffers. They are one in uh, influence, helping other people do the same thing. And we see this all over the place. Where do we see it the most? What's some of the most acute uh, soil for this type of kudzu to grow in? A lot of times it's in the college, uh, college landscape. Uh, I've, I've been in ministry for a while, I did youth ministry for a while, and I'm old enough in ministry to have seen uh, fifth graders go into middle school, into high school, and go to college, graduate, and have families on their own. And I've sat uh, around dinner tables with more crying parents who love Jesus, who raise their children in the church, who then send them off to college, and... Uh, in their first, you know, semester with some sort of intro to philosophy class, they're absolutely hammered for their worldview and belief systems. Absolutely hammered. Their kid comes home questioning everything. The parents get upset. They feel like failures. Everybody's upset. There's tension in the room. And it's just this slow drip in the university of, of trying to um, alleviate these students of these a horrendous, oppressive societal norms that they've been raised with. Uh, this is very true. I have a student. Uh, she went to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Bart Ehrman is a, uh, is a stalwart in uh, destroying people's Christian views when they come into their freshman class. She wrote uh, one of her papers in her uh, freshman year, uh, Basically, just adhering to a biblical norm and cited the Bible as a truth source for that. 
Earned and failed her immediately, sent her with a giant F, and this was a straight-A scholar athlete her whole life. She came to me, what do I do about this? And she just continued to challenge the system further and further up. It took her about eight months. She had left her freshman year and gone into um, her sophomore year still battling to get that paper approved. Who's really going to put up that kind of fight on a daily basis? Most people are just going to say, you know what, I just won't use the Bible, I'll get rid of this, I won't maintain this position just to get the A. That is a lot like life. This is what happens to a lot of our young people. They are getting battered on all sides with understanding what they believe and why they believe it. Now, Christianity needs to be confronted. I'm not saying that flippantly. It's good. For our worldview and our belief system to be challenged. Because why? That's going to sharpen us. It's okay to have our worldview challenged because there's been countless people that have tried to disprove the Bible and they end up becoming uh, Christians themselves or they just give up. There's been plenty of people way smarter than me that have tried to get rid of the Bible and the Bible's still standing and those critics are in the dustbins of history. Because we know that there is a challenging of the Christian worldview, particularly in academia, what do we do as a church to offset this? What do we do to prepare our children for this eventual reality where they're going to have to stand firm in what they believe and why they believe it? They're not going to be able to just get mad and get frustrated and take their ball and go home, but they need to be able to have intellectual conversations here. Well, starting in children's ministry all the way through college, Osprey Outreach is the shirt I'm wearing. We are building curriculum to partner with parents to foster that knowledge and the love of the Lord and to help them uh, engage in, with Christianity with winsomeness and love. And in middle school and high school and even in Osprey Outreach, our college ministry, twice a semester, we do what's called Stump the Chump. Where all of our children and all of our college students throughout the semester will write down questions to things that they've been challenged with through our uh, curriculum, through what's happening on uh, the college campus. And then they write these questions down anonymously, and I'm the chump who goes in to be stumped completely unprepared. And yes, I am a chump. I've been stumped plenty. But the reality of this for all of us is... Our kids, the next generation, they can handle a lot. They're asking huge questions. They need us to step in the gap with them and talk about these things together. Adults, we've been conditioned to not talk about blood at the dinner table, religion and politics. Those are the conversations we need to be having at the table. And my encouragement for all of us, grandparents, parents, ministry leaders, uh, just Christians in general, we have a responsibility to enter into these conversations. And I know a lot of times it's, well, I'm not prepared enough to have this conversation. I don't know how to have these things. That's just analysis, paralysis by analysis. What our students are looking for is just be a chunk to stand up and just have the conversation. Why do we put application questions in our sermon notes inside of the app. And so you can take those questions and go have those questions and conversations with your friends, loved ones, kids, coworkers. 
You can just start the conversation. Part of learning is to just be able to say, I don't know the answer to that. And I'm okay to be wrong. And I'm okay to process this with you. Titus, my six-year-old, asked me questions. And I'm like, where in the world did that come from? I have no idea how to answer this. And then we're going to talk through this and think through this. And I'm going to come back with even better answers. We've got our work cut out for us, church. Because if we continue to pass those hard conversations along to the next person... We better realize that there's plenty of people who know how moldable and impressionable these children are, and how by typically 16 to 18, a person's worldview is almost at concrete. So it's our duty, Christians, around us, to be the bigger brother or bigger sister to people around us and have these conversations with truth and love and be okay being wrong. We're going to get stuff wrong. That's the part of growing in your knowledge. It's like lifting weights. There's some point where you might not be able to bench press the barbell, but after working over and over, you can put a couple plates on there. The same thing with the Bible. You're going to grow in your knowledge of that, and let me encourage you to stand firm in this and to have those good conversations. But sadly, not being equipped and not equipping the next generation has consequences. Look at verse 4. This is what the consequences of, of not entering into these spaces are. Verse 4 describes this uh, progression of sinful hardening, kind of like chaff being blown away in the wind. So if you can start to put together the imagery here, it says hardened concrete being absolutely destroyed by the wind. It's this hardened position that's just so daft and empty. But uh, we get another illustration of these farmers during harvest time having grain. I bet you there was that one point where they were eating the grain with the husk and stems on it. And we're like, this is disgusting. And then over time, their ignorance was like, oh, well, we need to figure out a way to separate the grain from the husk and stems. So what they did was they had these big wooden sifters and they would throw the grain with the husks and the stems and the grain together. And what would happen, the wind in Palestine would blow the husk and stems away and then the grain would land on the threshing room floor. To keep the grain from being cross-contaminated with the stems and the husks, they would have this fire that was always going, that was burning this chaff away and just leaving the edible seeds and grain. What's the point of all this? On the surface, following the wisdom of the world might look like the right thing to do. On the surface, growing up and seeing opulence and friends and power and accolades and achievements, that looks wonderful. And I'm not saying those things are bad in and of themselves, but if the attainment is for this shiny thing without the knowledge and love of God uh, interpreting those things, what can happen is you're going to experience the pain of life and you are going to hear the doctor say you've got one year to live, six months to live. You're going to be in that car crash and everything's going to be over. And you're going to be standing at the face of God and all of the accolades, all of the things, all of the friend groups, there's no bartering that's going to happen when you meet God face to face. There's an immediate sifting that takes place. 
and think about pain and suffering and hardship, that's the great human equalizer. I've set beside the bed of plenty of dying people, plenty of people that have had everything in the world, who've come to know Jesus later in life, and they said, I chased everything, and all I was looking for was Jesus the whole time. I'm not saying things of this world are bad, but all of these things are intended to point you somewhere else. And the point of all of this is I want to challenge your belief system. And this is why Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5, he says, test everything. Hold fast to what is good. And for all of us here on the spectrum of uh, being hard and atheist, agnostic, I can't stand the Lord, I'm only here to impress somebody and go on a date. Uh, two, I've been walking with Jesus for the last 50 years. No matter where you are on the spectrum, you always need to be challenging your worldview and belief system. You need to be ever reforming why you believe and what you believe back to God's word. If you're here today and you're listening online and you might have doubts about God, you might be wrestling with your faith in him. That's actually a good place to be. You're in a moldable state. My challenge to you is to question your doubts. Why are you doubting the truth of the word? It's at least a fair question to doubt your doubts. I would encourage you to dig into God's word. Come talk to me at the connect table. There's a whole list of community group leaders and, and church leaders. Come and meet us. Message us through the app. Ask these questions and let's walk through this together. The worst thing that you can do with doubt is to brush it off. The worst thing that you can do with questioning God's word is to kick that can down the road and try to figure it out later. That restlessness is a good thing. Stay moldable so that you don't become hardened in that belief system. Now, thankfully God has a remedy for this. Thankfully God is able to break the hardest of concrete. Thankfully God is able to break through to that person and that was me. I didn't become a Christian until well after college. And I was a very hardened atheist. And God can break through even the most rambunctious, horrible soil in the world. And this is why I love this song. So we looked at what following the world's wisdom looks like. Let's Let's look at what following God's word looks like. And let's take it back to verse 1 here. In verse 1, we see the blessed man. And then in verse 2, we see that this man delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. The law here is in reference not just to the Ten Commandments, but all of God's word. And this blessed man avoids, negatively avoids following the world and positively uh, anchors or roots his life in following God's instruction. And this is going to kind of be countercultural to what blessing looks like. Notice what the blessed man here is. For a person to be truly blessed is to love God's word. That's the greatest blessing of all because if we really believe how the kudzu of sin has affected us down inside of our DNA, the fact that we love God's word is a massive blessing. And this illustration about this blessed person is seen in verse 3. It says they're like a tree planted by streams of water from where the roots to the leaves is always producing vibrant.
vibrant, sustaining life. And this person is always prospering, the Bible says. But what does always prospering mean here? It means nothing in this world is going to take this person away from the knowledge and love of God. That no matter what life throws at this person, they can take all of their pain, happiness, sadness, and emotions and bring it to the Father and stay calm and content and loving, no matter what's going on. Add to that blessing, is that tree accidentally planted? Is that just some random haphazard stance that these trees are just somehow planted? No. This tree has been purposefully planted. Meaning what? By God's grace, no matter how solid you are in whatever worldview that's anti to God, God's word can uproot even the strongest anti-Christian foundation ever. God's word, even as small as a mustard seed, can break through to the hardest soil and produce life in the midst of some of the most terrible consequences. What we're learning is that the person who digs deeply into God's word will be like that planted tree. Your life will have roots that are constantly nourished by the water of grace, and you will, whether you realize it or not, put off life-sustaining grace to everyone around you where other people can feed off of. This is exactly what happened with the Matthews family. They went through all of that pain and brokenness and hardship, and they were able to even tell of their experiences who are even today nourishing us by what happened to them. They were able to be spiritually content in the midst of horrible conditions in the midst of even communist-controlled China. So what does this do for us? How does this get really practical on a day-to-day -day level for us? What does this do for you in the face of suffering, in the face of mourning, in the face of longing and waiting, maybe in the face of just boring life? You don't have to put a fake spin on what you're experiencing and hyper-spiritualize it away. You can go through really deep suffering and longing and confusion and bring that to God with sighs and tears and groaning and gasps and wailing. And you don't even have to put words to that. But if you do that through faith, God knows exactly what you're experiencing. You don't have to put some bumper sticker Christianity on your suffering and just dismiss it like, oh, everything's going to be fine. My arm is actually broken, but God's going to build it back stronger because I can persevere through Christ. Yeah, you can, but it's also okay to say, man, this really hurts. Man, this is really painful. I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. I'm scared God has forgotten about me. I'm scared that this pain is never going to go away. I'm scared that I'm the only one ever experiencing this, and I'm scared to death. You can bring that before God. Sometimes just saying the pain out loud has a way of triggering healing in you. How? How does that even work? You see, when you experience pain, when you experience suffering, loss, 
weakness, when people, places, and things fail you, what you're doing is you are intimately connecting into your Savior. You are intimately experiencing what Jesus has felt. He didn't die just to save you from your sins. He experienced your pain to be able to suffer with you. You come to him with brokenness and he doesn't hit you with, oof, I'll pray for you, brother. He says, I know. I know. And I hate it. He reminds you that you are not experiencing anything that hasn't already been beaten and done to him physically and spiritually and emotionally. And he reminds you that he's resurrected from the dead, that this isn't the end. There's some situations in life where you just don't experience this type of peace until you understand that type of pain. And so when that pain hits, you don't need to just dismiss it or compartmentalize it or just disassociate from reality. No, you go head forth with it and you bring it to the throne and you come before the Father and you batter down the gates of heaven and say, help. The church looks too sterile because we don't know how to suffer at the foot of Jesus. We don't love people well in their brokenness because we don't know how to experience brokenness ourselves. And church, you can't take anybody anywhere where you haven't been. This isn't a call to be guilty about this. This is a call to say it's okay to weep and suffer at the foot of Jesus. Letting that happen might start the chain of healing that you've been longing for for years. The accolades, the glitz, the glamour, the promotions, that could all just be layers trying to cover up what God is trying to do with you. And it's to bring healing. And if somebody has just thrown a Christian cliche at your suffering and has just told you to compartmentalize that suffering, you're just going to do that with someone else. This is a call to embrace what you're feeling at the Savior's throne and to find peace that passes understanding, to let healing take place. Because I know so many of you in here are suffering in silence. I know what that's like. It's because you don't find people in general to be a safe place to suffer around. Let that healing take place with you so that you can be life-giving fruit for someone else. The good news is when you find that peace, it just doesn't end here. It goes through you into eternity. Because look at verse 6. It says, The Lord knows. Sorry, it's probably an Android phone. I really do love Android phone users. It's just really funny to pick on. Look at verse 6. This piece goes into eternity. Because it says, The way God knows the way of the righteous. Right? 
And the way of the righteous is personified in who? The Sunday school answer is Jesus, obviously. Because of John 14, 6, the way of the righteous is seen through the person of righteousness, Jesus, who says he is the what? The way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. So if you're a Christian, your worldview hinges on what the Bible says about Jesus, what Jesus has done, and what Jesus has accomplished, and what he continues to do. So if you're in a conversation of politics and theology, and they say, don't use your Bible, they're just trying to take your tools out of your hand. This is our source of truth. This is our source of life. Know it intimately. Be proud of this. Don't be scared to lean on God's word. And it begs the question for us Christians, is God's word your life? Here he comes with the guilt again. No, I'm not trying to harbor guilt with anybody. This is a question three fingers at me. No is the answer for me. I get scared, frustrated, sad, and the first thing I want to do is weep and mope and moan and gripe and complain ask my wife about it. I don't immediately just go to the Psalms and the Scriptures and find Jesus. I self-loathe all the time. So this challenge is for me just as much as it is for y'all. What I want to do just today is elevate God's word in the middle of everything that we do in this life. And the reason why is because the good, the bad, the boring is going to hit. And the question is, where do we turn in those times? What message, what news, what resource are we turning to to find help and hope? Where do you give your soul nourishment? We have to ask these questions. If you don't have the consistency of God's word pulsing through our veins, the chaos of this life is going to leave you regularly dysregulated. Where you're living in this world of right brain feelings and left brain logic, where the pain of this world doesn't allow your brain to be integrated. So you just constantly live with fears and doubts and worries and anxieties. Because we're not regularly regulated by God's word that is our life-giving, sustaining source of hope. There's probably many of you listening and thinking I sound cuckoo. I'm glad that you're here. My question for you is where does your soul find rest? And what happens when that source of rest loses its restfulness? I've got good friends that have beachfront homes, and they're like, we're going on vacation. I'm like, what do you mean? Like, that's vacation. They're like, well, we're used to that. We need to go somewhere else for vacation. And I'm not mad at them, but the whole point about vacations and sunsets and promotions and, and things of this world that are wonderful, that God blesses us with, the reason why they're ultimately not satisfying is because they're always intended to point you to something greater. They're always intending to point you to the source of life-giving hope that lasts forever. They only point you to something that's eternally satisfying. And my challenge for you is if you're doubting that today, start by just digging into God's Word. Just deal with the resurrection. 
deal with the resurrection and the eyewitness accounts, and let's work through that together. I have a challenge for believers and non-believers alike because life this side of heaven is like battling kudzu. We've got sin deeply, deeply rooted in our DNA. And for Christians, the power of sin is broken in you, but the presence of sin still remains. And I say that probably 30 times a year, and you're going to hear it every chance that it applies. Sin has been broken in you by faith in Jesus, but that power of sin still lives in us, and it's wooing our hearts constantly away from God's Word. You might have experiences. Life's really hard, and I just feel like I can't read God's Word right now. The pain's so bad. I feel like I can't pray in this season because life's so bad. Welcome to the club. It's in those moments where you need to cling to somebody else in community where you can pour out your heart to them and say, can you be strong for me in this season? I am struggling. Help. You were never intended to digest this word alone, but you were intended to do it in community. This is why we have community groups. And think about this. Take a few weeks off from worship. Take a few weeks off from reading God's Word. Take a few weeks away from experiencing the grace of the gospel in your life and watch that bowl of kudzu of sin start to reappear in your life. It just starts to happen. We will always give back into that tangled mess. And speaking of cuckoo, this is my final illustration. See? Some of y'all paying attention? See, I'll loop that back in. All right. Let's talk about the cuckoo bird. It's a very common bird in England, and the cuckoo bird is always in a massive battle with the thrush. Cuckoo birds are way bigger than little tiny baby thrushes, and cuckoos know it. If you're a bird expert in here, check me in, uh, what do they call it? Like truth, truth, what do you, uh, fact checker. Fact check me if you're a bird person after this. However, I did enough research to show that a cuckoo bird does not build nests, nor does it parent. When it feels an egg coming on, it will find an empty thrush nest a lot of times, uh, lay its egg, and then fly off, and that's the end of their parenting. Thrushes are not very smart, and what thrushes will do is they'll come in here and lay eggs beside it, and then the mother thrush will hatch all of these baby birds together, not knowing the difference. The cuckoo baby bird grows massive, and the little thrushes are there. They're all yelping for food, and uh, narrow-minded mother thrush runs off and gets worms and comes back, and guess who gets the majority of the life-saving nutrients in the food? The baby cuckoo. The baby cuckoo's eating all these nutrients. The baby thrushes are around it, and the cuckoo bird gets bigger. Everybody gets smaller, and then the cuckoo gets smart enough and says, I'm tired of competing with you, and will throw the baby cuckoos out of the nest until the mother thrush just comes back and keeps feeding the baby cuckoo, and the baby takes over the whole nest. It's this invasive species that's destroying everything around them, and bird experts, I don't even know the name of what y'all are, but if you're a bird expert, I'm sure you have some sort of name, uh, and they said the best way to find a thrush nest is to walk alongside hedges and find struggling or dead baby thrushes, and there you'll find a little baby cuckoo bird. Amen. Y'all have a great day. Just kidding. There's a point to all this. And the threat is the invasive species, kudzu. 
Are y'all with me? As a Christian, you have been born again, but you still have a sin nature that lives in you. What you give life to will grow. So if you feed your soul gospel community, you read God's word, you listen to the gospel, if you are regularly acquainted with that you're a work in progress, that Jesus died to bring you new life and rose again to give you hope forever and that you're always forgiven, if that's what's growing in you, the lures and the attractiveness of this world will start to diminish not saying that they won't be great, but you're not going to depend on that vacation to make it through work the next week. You're not going to depend on that thing to be able to just love your family better. You're not going to depend on blank thing to just be a normal loving person anymore. Your source of life will be found here, and then you can enjoy everything else much greater. God's word has this effect on us because it constantly reminds us that we are cuckoo at a certain level. We've got a crazy side that if we do not check regularly with God's grace, we will grow into little mini beautiful monsters and will destroy everything around us thinking that we're doing the right thing. God's word is that constant source of truth that says you are way worse than you ever think you are, but I love you way more than you'll ever fathom. God's grace reminds us that you'll never out the blood of the Lamb, that He is always with you, always forgiving you, and there is mercy at every turn along the way. Every failure, every disappointment, every brokenness, everything you do is forgiven and loved through faith in Jesus. You see, when you feed your soul what it was created to do, which is enjoy God and glorify Him forever. When you get that from the promises of God found in His Word, the wisdom of this world and the kudzu of sin will start to fade away more and more. And what will be left with you at the end of your life will be this deeply rooted, well-nourished tree that's been putting out life for years and years and years. And you might be a battered, splintered, crooked, ugly, old, no hair, gray, old, nasty tree, right? But you've been putting out life and you reflect God's love. And when you meet God face to face, you will experience the giver of that life for all of eternity. You will be nourished. You will see him face to face and you will rejoice in all the splintering all of the battering, all of the weathering that has constantly beat at you for over the years will be met in the face of the great I am, and you will find peace forever. Let us plug into that peace now and pray. Father, this world is amazing and beautiful in so many ways, but because of sin, we have... Uh, oftentimes created substitute gods in our life because we think that the things of this world are better than you. And we don't do this to actively war against you. That's just the sin in our DNA that cuts you, that lives in us. Sin has affected our brain's ability to rationalize that you are the God that created all things, who sustains all things. And you've given us all these things for our good and enjoyment, but to bring glory to you. And oftentimes, Lord, 
We try to dethrone you with other things and quickly find out that they don't nourish us the way that we were told that they would. Father, forgive us for that. Help us to see that the things of this world are beautifully good, but only pointing us to you. And when we use the things of this world to glorify you and enjoy you, and when we forget, Father, I pray that you would gently remind us that you are the giver of that sunset, that you are the giver of that child's laughter, that you are the giver of that promotion, that you are the giver of the blessings of this world. May we enjoy them open-handed. May we be a people that knows how to take all the experiences of this world and run them through the grid of your word. And no matter what this life brings, Father, would you give us peace that passes understanding like the Matthews. We pray this